Smartcast. You're listening to a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. Hello and welcome to a new episode of 1947, The Road to Indian Independence, a special podcast series presented to you by the Hindustan Times to mark India at 75. The partition of Bengal in 1905 had sharpened the communal division between Hindus and Muslims. The All India Muslim League had taken birth in Dhaka the following year in 1906. In 1909, the British constitutional scheme institutionalized this division in some ways by creating separate electorates, a move that the Indian National Congress opposed. But a little over a decade after the partition of Bengal in 1916, At a historic meeting in Lucknow, a joint session of the Congress and Muslim League was held. Both forces came to an agreement called the Lucknow Pact. The Congress agreed to the idea of separate electorates and demanded that one third of the seats in the Imperial and Provincial Legislative Councils should be held for Muslims. In turn, the Muslim League agreed with the Congress's demand for an increase in the number of elected seats in the council, for greater autonomy for provinces, and the separation of the judiciary and the executive. For the first time. In the 20th century, Hindus and Muslims presented a common front, a common set of demands to the British. But was the Lucknow Pact an exhilarating moment of unity, or did it sow the seeds for further division? What led to the pact, and what were its implications? To help us think through this part of India's freedom struggle, I'm delighted to welcome to this episode of our podcast the historian Ridhula Mukherjee, who has taught history at JNU and served as the head of the Nehru Memorial Museum and Library. We've all grown up studying Ridhula Ma'am's book, India's Struggle for Independence, co-authored with the doyen of Indian history, Bipin Chandra, and her fellow historian and husband, Aditya Mukherjee. On that note, welcome, Ma'am. Thank you, Prashant. I'm glad to be here. Ma'am, take us back to Hindu-Muslim ties in the early 20th century. Why was this communal fault line deepened? Well, you have to go back a little further into the 19th century to understand. why we get the kind of developments which you've just talked about reaction to the partition of bengal and the formation of the muslim league etc so i'll take you back back to the revolt of 1857 you know the revolt of 1857 was a wonderful example of hindu muslim unity in fact i would like to say that what the revolt of 1857 in which hindus and muslims at all levels elite as well as common people's levels fought together what it demonstrated was that there was no communal notion in india at that time hindus and muslims did not think of themselves as separate communities they followed different religions but they did not think of themselves as different people certainly not as different nations leave alone as different communities so there was an organic a natural unity which was there which had come into being over centuries of living together which is reflected in the revolt of 1857 now the british obviously very perturbed by this revolt was a massive revolt it took them one year to suppress it hundreds of thousands of lives were lost on both sides so their reaction uh, to this was they kind of held the muslims responsible for this revolt because bahadur shah 
had, you know, was the last Mughal emperor. He was chosen as the unwilling leader, but a leader nevertheless by the rebels. And the whole idea was that there was still resentment that the British had taken over power from the Mughals. And it was the Muslim elite uh, which was of the opinion that they had lost power to the British and they were the ones who were behind the revolt. Awadh, the Nawab of Awadh had been dislodged and being Awadh was a major centre of the revolt. So all this fed into what became then an anti-Muslim bias in the British administration. And they began to actively discriminate against Muslims. So we have a kind of period of a couple of decades at least when Muslims are in the doghouse. This is also the period where then the Muslim community starts, instead of resisting, they kind of go inwards. They turn inwards and say they reject everything modern. You know, so they reject modern education. So this whole complex set of factors leads to a situation where by the 1870s and 1880s, there is a perceptible gap between the Hindu and the Muslim middle classes particularly, who are the new emerging classes under British rule as a result of Western education and who are all coming and taking up the new professions. Government employment, lawyers, doctors, you know, all that sector that's opening up now. So, Sahir Ahmed Khan is the person, for example, who in a sense best represents what's going on. And his first reaction is to say Muslims must overcome this bias. And they must take to modern education. They mustn't get left behind. But in fact, he doesn't start out as somebody who's only targeting Muslims. He tries to encourage everybody. He sets up scientific societies in which Hindus, Muslims, everybody is a part. But then he particularly looks at the Muslims and says, no, they need to get modern education. So he sets up the Aligarh College. And mind you, the Aligarh College is funded by Hindus and Muslims both. Rich Hindus as much contributed and there were Hindu students as well. But come 1885 and the founding of the Indian National Congress and by 1887 the British decide that this is indeed a rebellious anti-imperialist organization and they start bad-mouthing it. Tuffin's famous comments, this they represent a microscopic minority, this, that and the other. Then Sahir Ebelkhar changes. And he begins to believe that, you know, he should stay away from the Congress. The Muslims should have nothing to do with the Congress or the nationalist forces because they will get swamped by the majority. The entire rhetoric of communal politics, which we become familiar with later, comes from this period, 1885 onwards, which comes about as a reaction to the way the British are seeing the Congress. Sayyid Ahmed Khan, in a sense, sees it as an opportunity. The government is now turning against these educated Hindus. Muslims should have nothing to do with them so they can get government favor. And it's this then that leads to the situation by the end of the century. In the meantime, some Hindu landlords and upper classes have also got mobilized. They do their anti-cow slaughter campaign. There are riots in the 1890s. So the situation is now ripe for some kind of dissonance. And then comes the partition of Bengal which again the British tried to project and in fact it comes about the agitation against the partition of Bengal, the Swadeshi movement comes about because the British are trying to actively divide Hindus and Muslims. The whole purpose of the partition of Bengal was to create a Muslim majority province of Assam and reduce the size and the weight of the Hindu majority by making Bengal small because Bengal and Bengali Hindus were seen as the fountainhead of 
all the new trouble which the British were in put to. So it's this kind of last, you could say, five decades of developments that come to a head with the partition of Bengal, the agitation against the partition of Bengal, the fact that it acquires a mass character and therefore the British reaction to it is now even more uh, you know, panic, panicky than it was earlier because now they see it as something that's affecting ordinary people. The revolutionary movement that's coming about with the bombings and this and that, the Alipur conspiracy cases, you know, all that atmosphere where the British are now looking for allies, internal allies against this. And the Muslim elite, you know, picking up on Sayyid Ahmed Khan's <coughs> transformed uh, politics from the 80s is ready for this. So, in fact, what you had, the Muslim League is actually formed by a very small group of uh, actually landlords, nawabs and bureaucrats. And it hardly has any mass base. Uh, so, this is the situation that we are at the beginning of the 20th century. So, let me just recap that, ma'am. What you are suggesting is that uh, 1857 represented a moment of Hindu-Muslim unity. The British decided that the Muslims were responsible and, and therefore took or adopted policies that were seen as disfavoring Muslims. By 1885, there was a tactical shift. The target shifted. Hindu elites were suddenly seen as the problem. The Muslims now see an opportunity or Muslim parts of the Muslim elites see an opportunity. And there is, under the divide and rule strategy, the British shift and start favoring the Muslim elites a little bit because they see the Hindus as, as the problem. And this is when the partition occurs and the Muslim League gets formed. What happens in 1909, ma'am? What's this constitutional scheme that the British come up with and what does separate electorates mean? Separate electorates were, I think, one of the most, uh, what shall I say, one of the worst or the most evil progeny of the British Empire. And in my opinion, they laid the seeds of the partition of India. In a sense, once you had separate electorates in place, and once the number of people who are, that started uh, becoming voters, you know, the franchise started getting extended, and more and more uh, people, though not adult franchise, but significant number of people began to get affected by the electoral process. It was almost inevitable that you would end up developing two political communities, or at least the Muslims would develop as a separate political community. Because what the separate electorates did, I think it's important to spell this out for our listeners, is it's not reservations. It's very different from reservations. It's reservations where in elected uh, seats, where both the elected representative and the electors can only belong to the same religion. So a constituency is not a territorial constituency. A constituency is a religiously defined constituency. So let's say in the city of Amritsar in Punjab, there would be a constituency which would be called Amritsar West Mohammedan. And there would be another constituency territorially overlapping, which would say Amritsar West General. And there would be a third one, which would say Amritsar West Sikh once the six came into the picture a little later. So you could have in the same territorial area two constituencies which were for minorities and another constituency which was for the non-minorities called general but then essentially meant uh, the Hindus. Okay, 
Now, once you understand the logic of this, and this is mind you very different from what we have even till today. We have reservations for scheduled castes and scheduled tribes in the parliament and in the legislatures, but the electorate is the entire territorial constituency. The candidate can only be a scheduled caste or a scheduled tribe. This is to ensure that minorities and backward. uh so called backward groups get representation but they have to appeal to the entire community they are not being voted in by only scheduled castes or scheduled tribes or you know whatever it might be right so that is the important uh difference between reservation per se and reservation with separate electorates so reservation with separate electorates actively promotes ghettoized political mobilization and separate political mobilization of muslims because a muslims or any other minority in south india it was brahmin versus non brahmin so there were non brahmin constituency from the 20s onwards and this was not only in the legislatures this principle was then extended to jobs this principle then got extended to reservation for seats in medical colleges engineering colleges you know the way these were so once that principle was established you then multiplied it across society in order to create those divides and mutual resentments and make people think that they are competing with each other rather than having to fight for it i mean that was of course what it was all supposed to be about keep you keep everybody busy thinking the enemy is my neighbor Uh, who's taking away my share rather than the british who've taken away everybody's share so in the in this end you forget your who the big billy is you know uh, while you're all fighting uh, amongst yourselves so these separate electorates in 1909 as i said i think it was one of the worst products you know imaginative parts of imperial imagination they did many bad things but i think this is about the worst because logically it ended up in the partition of it because over time what happens a muslim aspirant to political office never has to talk to a hindu politically he never has to appeal to him he never has to say i will give you this or he never has to say you know this is my politics and uh, you know and please identify with my politics he doesn't have to have any language or concession or program which appeals to anybody but muslims so this pushes you inexorably into a more and more communal mindset and rhetoric so ma'am this happened in 1909 and i think thank you for laying out for us what the implications of the separate electorate were the indian nationalists led by the congress opposed it in 1909 what happened in the subsequent 7 years that eventually laid the foundations for the lucknow pact now Uh, just a little bit of background to the lucknow pact what actually happened after the uh, formation of the muslim league which as we know was a command performance and involved a very small section of the muslim elite at the lower levels and at the middle class levels despite all the british policies a new class of middle class muslims were emerging and these middle class muslims uh, had more or less the same ideas and aspirations as the hindu middle classes uh, which had emerged let's say a couple of decades earlier so representatives of this were uh, mohammad ali jinnah 
representative of this was Mulana Azad. So from about 1910, 1912, you see this new progressive radical Muslim politics emerging. And in the Muslim League, these people come to the forefront. And they take over, they are young, they are dynamic, they are educated, highly educated, you know, and they take on the leadership of the Muslim League. And what happens then is a coming together of the Congress and these elements in the Muslim League. So in 1916, which is the period now, it must remember it's the middle of the war. The world war is going on. Uh, the Congress is still not fully united, though it, at Lucknow there is unity, but Congress has split. Tilak had been sent into exile in Burma. He just came back in 1914. Uh, he sets up the Home Rule League and Ali Bersen sets up the Home Rule League and they're both working to arouse some kind of uh, mass politics uh, in India, actually just revive political activity. And this is the period when there is a feeling that the British have, you know, got the better of uh, the whole political establishment by in enabling a divide in the Congress, by sending Tilak away, you know, uh, taking very tough uh, measures, etc., etc. So there is a feeling that we must try to come together, uh, you know, a strong urge to come together. Now, Tilak takes the lead on behalf of the Congress and Home Rule League, I mean, the progressive elements from among the Hindus, you could say broadly. And Jinnah is at the forefront of this from the side of the League. And with great difficulty, they succeed in coming together. They hold sessions in Lucknow simultaneously and a Congress League pact is formed. Now, there are many positive things in this pact, which is that both sides agree to get to asking for further concessions from the British. So there is a lot of agreement on the need for progressive constitutional reforms. However, the issue of separate electorates, I think, is the one which is the tricky one. Because the Congress does accept separate electorates in this pact. I think the desire for unity was so strong that they over it overcame, you know, whatever reservations there may, there may have been, which there were about separate electorates. And I think it's important to remember that these were very early days yet. 1909, separate electorates had been introduced. They had hardly been put into practice. So what the effects of these would be? That they would stay forever? I don't think people were aware of the significance of that. It becomes evident later as the franchise increases and as you know, you could, you begin to see how this politics plays out. So I think there was a genuine desire for unity on both sides. So a concession was made without which obviously the pact would not have been possible. Possibly in the hope that once we are together, then we'll be able to overcome these kinds of issues. Even 10 years, uh, 12 years later, when another attempt at unity uh, was made, Motilal Nehru report, the constitutional reforms uh, that were to be presented to the British, but finally Jinnah didn't uh, cooperate. I think it, these were, when we look back, we look back with hindsight. But if we place ourselves in 1916 or in 1928, these things didn't look so intractable. 
because we hadn't reached the stage of what we call extreme communalism which is when communalism becomes a mass phenomenon at this stage it is still very much what we call liberal communalism which is essentially an elite and a middle class affair it's not really reached the people yet you mentioned jinnah as one of the key figures tell us a little bit about jinnah in this stage of his politics as sarojini naidu if i recall correctly called him the ambassador of hindu muslim unity around this time what was his politics at this point and how did he see growing muslim communalism uh, the british response to the hindu muslim question and what was his framework jinnah was very much a nationalist he was the leader at that time even a little more than molana azad who I think who was there at that time from 1912 you were picking out your journals and all that but you know jinnah from bombay progressive modern sort of representing the new middle classes lawyer barrister london educated you know he kind of the figure he cut and he you know fought cases he was a brilliant lawyer he was a brilliant man he fought cases for tilak i mean there was no difference between him and other congress leaders he had a, a close relationship uh, with uh, gandhi ji when he came you know the same gujarati community i mean it was all he was very much part of the top political level leadership if you look at it you know at that time housed in really in bombay western india at that time he was very much a part of that inner group he begins to hold himself away once gandhi comes to the fore and once and it's not a personality thing uh, as it is made out to be it is the first difference is jinnah is very uncomfortable with mass politics he is essentially an upper class westernized cigar smoking whiskey drinking barrister he doesn't really like the hoi poli the refraff it's not his politics and when gandhi makes it clear that the congress is now going to be a party of the masses of the poor of the peasantry he's very uncomfortable he also thinks it's very dangerous because he thinks that once you let masses into politics they will then take over and god knows what will happen it will lead to bayam it will lead to chaos don't also forget this is the period of the russian revolution bolshevism was a very frightening word at that time in fact the british called gandhi a bolshevik because if someone was a rebel you called them a bolshevik and also to frighten people that gandhi you know be afraid of him he is a bolshevik so that whole thing of you know if you let loose the masses as they have in russia see what's going to happen they are going to kill the czar they are going to frighten away all the upper classes they are going to take over the country and it's going to be violence and it's going to be civil war and so that frightening prospect of masses coming into politics he represented in that sense the moderate politicians who were tilak was comfortable with people tilak was always trying to get the congress to go more and more to the masses but gokhale and others you know of that generation they were of a different mold it's not a class thing in their case but it was a political belief of what kind of politics was appropriate for india was appropriate for the freedom struggle so many of these people moved away from the congress 
no when the congress took a mass turn not because they had ideological differences with it but because they they had differences over the methods that's very interesting man and the pact going back to the lucknow pact the pact still represented an intervention in constitutional politics because the set of demands were about increased representation within the empire within the constitutional structure how did the british respond to the pact were they worried about hindu muslim unity or did they see it as a moment of opening to work with both communities by no means the british are always worried about hindu muslim unity i think uh, as i started my story in like 1857 that's what frightened them the most you know and now also there is no question uh, of them accepting uh, the demand but as in the typical british fashion it was always a question of carrot and stick you give a little and then you use the stick on the rest so what we have in uh, 1917 uh, is what was called the august declaration where montagu who was the secretary of state that means the minister responsible for india in the british cabinet he made a declaration in the house of commons where he said that the aim and objective of british rule in india is to grant self government to india so it was like a major step forward in terms of the british actually saying that a demand for self government was no longer treason because it was their aim as well however again as i said the typical british uh, strategy give with one hand take back with the other the next sentence was however the timing and pace of progress towards the goal will be decided by the british and the british alone okay so it's not like we are going to come and give you self government tomorrow we will sometime in the future yes but don't think that you can make a lot of noise and you know therefore you can decide and tell us when we should give you self government that is still going to be something that's our in our control so there's no concession there of indian being partner in government mind you right but at the same time there is this sort of concession which some they know some politicians will respond some people will say look they made this concession so let's wait let's see after the war what they actually do which was true so there were people you know and significantly mature people also after the war who said let the british make an offer you know and many, and many of those older politicians resisted gandhi because they said you know now that they have made their offer in 1918 the new reforms and there are going to be elections so let's give them a chance whereas gandhi said no let's go in after chaliyanwala bag after you know the raulat satyagraha you know the british are not going to give anything substantial it's very clear so we and even if they give anything substantial it's going to be when we put up a good fight it's never going to happen through just negotiations concessions will only come through hard struggle So man one one of the fault lines within the nationalist movement was this tension that you are describing between constitutional politics and mass politics to go back to the hindu muslim question why did this moment of unity not last despite the congress having made this huge ideological concession of accepting separate electorates 
I think uh, I wouldn't agree with you to say that this moment of unity did not last or it dissipated immediately. Let's not forget what happened in the non-cooperation and Khilafat movement. Just a few years later, and I think the Lucknow Pact obviously had an impact on the total political climate uh, at that time. After all, when Gandhi comes, uh, comes out and presents his program of action in the Satyagraha Sabha, which leads to the Raulet Satyagraha and all that, that is the time where the Muslim leadership, which is All India Khilafat Committee, who are very unhappy with what the British are doing at the international level to Turkey, how <laughs> and how they are going back on all the promises made to the Muslims uh, when they said we, uh, when they wanted to recruit the Muslim soldiers, they had given assurances that the holy lands would not be taken away from the Sultan of Turkey, who was known as the Khalifa, the Khilafat the religious head of the Muslims. So this was seen as a very big uh, sort of betrayal by the Muslims. And when Gandhi, very interestingly, they called Gandhi to advise them. What should we do? And this is 1919 and, uh, and early 1920. And Gandhi then advises them that, you know, you should go in for a mass agitation. And non-cooperation movement idea first comes up as a response to the request of the Khilafat leadership, what course of action should be followed. And in fact, it is adopted also by them first and by the Congress later. Very large number of Muslims participated in the non-cooperation movement. One could in fact argue that especially in cities and especially in North Indian cities, the mass character of the non-cooperation movement was because of the participation of the Muslim urban classes, the artisanal classes, the people working in workshops. A large part of this community was Muslim. And it's they who gave this movement its mass character. And the examples of Hindu-Muslim uh, camaraderie of, you know, are, are legion during this period. The dissonance starts after 1923 when communal riots begin to break down. And that, if we want to go to that story, we have to go back to separate electorates. Because in between, what we have is the elections of 1923. And these are the first elections where there is actually participation because 1920 elections, because of non cooperation movement, nobody participated. So they were shamed. So the first time under the 1919 Act, elections are actually held on the ground and there is participation by all uh, the political forces. The result is exasperation of communal sentiment. Because that's the language which, which now people are going. Because first time separate electorates are being practiced at a mass level. And the result is after that communal riots. That's how I see it. I don't see it as some people do as the Khilafat and non-cooperation movement was withdrawn by Gandhi and the suppressed violence came out in the form of communal riots. I don't think that's the true picture at all. That's very interesting, ma'am. But if I was to push back on that, the uh, fact that in Lucknow, the Congress recognized a separate political identity of Muslims in the form of separate electorates and in the non-cooperation and Khilafat movement, a religious demand of a section of Muslims was incorporated within the nationalist frame. 
do you think these were huge mistakes in hindsight and the khilafat movement may have produced a temporary moment of unity but it sowed the seeds of introducing religion and politics in very harmful ways that's the criticism against the movement right you know i don't agree with that uh, at all because what we have to see is that in the movement was religious identity and religious ideology and communal ideology used to mobilize people we get no evidence of that a feeling of your religion being suppressed you know or religious interests being ignored or discriminated against which is what the feeling muslims had it was not a communal feeling against anybody another community the feeling was against the british that the british promised something and they betrayed right and therefore the protest and in the process of the movement there was a lot of coming together and the basic nationalist ideology of the congress spread among muslims you know and there were i mean if you actually read the stories about what was happening on the ground no way do you ever get stories of this leading to its exacerbation of difference that's not the picture you get uh, at all you know just like i don't buy into this story that because tilak uh, used the ganpati festival uh, and shivaji as a symbol therefore it led to a solidifying of a hindu communal consciousness no tilak made it clear again and again for me shivaji is a local hero against an outside power and for me shivaji is a symbol only in maharashtra mobilizing sympathy he said it in so many words if i was working at the all india level akbar would be my hero i'm not cooking this up it's there in black and white in his speeches again and again he said this just as ganapati festival and this it's like the puja in bengal what happened in the partition of bengal movement what did tagore do what did others do how did they reach out to people when you reach out to the masses culture has to become a part of it the jatras you know traditional forms of theater are adapted uh, to modern uh, political discourse so this is has to be part of every movement question is is it leading to a communal consciousness we have to distinguish between a religious feeling and communal feeling it's like jinnah is not religious at all and gandhi is very deeply religious and yet jinnah is the one who actually espouses later on a communal ideology whereas gandhi ji dies protecting a secular ideology thank you so much ma'am for laying out for us the history of the lucknow pact the divide and rule strategy adopted by the british in the wake of the 1857 mutiny the evolution that happened both within the muslim community and within the nationalist movement the implications of the separate electorates and how it created the foundations of this distinct political identity which was to haunt india for decades and if one could argue even till contemporary times and also ma'am for placing the lucknow pact within 
this broader arc of the Indian freedom struggle, the moment of unity it represented and how that unity eventually dissipated for reasons uh, that were not necessarily to do with Congress and the League, but to do with the British imperial strategies. This has been, I think, a fascinating lesson for our listeners. And uh, thank you again for joining us. Thank you so much, Prashant and AHT for giving me this opportunity. Please stay with us on this journey as we continue to explore India's road to independence. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.